Download a podcast from Relay FM recorded July 6th, 2017. This is episode 11. I'm a paranoid optimist. Welcome to Download, a weekly look at the most interesting stories in the world of technology and other stuff you care about. I'm Jason Snell, your host. This week, I'm joined by two wonderful guests. First, returning to the podcast for a second time, it, she is an analyst at Creative Strategies. It is Carolina Milanesi. Hello. Hi, thank you for having me back. Thanks for coming back. I really appreciate it. That's a good sign that it wasn't horrible the last time. <laughs> <laughs> um, also joining us for the first time on Download, uh, one of my former colleagues at IDG. He's the editorial director at IDG for the uh, US and UK now. Yeah, he's got part of my old job, along with like lots of other people's <laughs> jobs that have all been wrapped in the greatness that is Matt Egan. Hi, Matt. Oh, Thank you, Jason. Hello. There's not not anybody uh, better for that job. You, you congratulations on on doing that, and you guys do great work at IDG UK, and now you're doing uh, your work in the US too. It's awesome. Thank you. I think so too. We've been to a football match together, so there's that. A soccer match. A soccer. I was gonna say yeah. which football. <laughs> the, the, which the, means the proper kind. You owe me uh, a visit to a football match. Of your kind of football. Yes. Oh, yeah. We'll make it happen. We'll, we'll certainly make it happen. We'll leave those transactions, sporting transactions, for off the podcast. Instead, let's get down to business. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the more interesting stories of the week. Of course, it's a short week in the U.S., holiday week. Not in the U.K. necessarily, but it's also summer. Things are a little sluggish, but we found, we dug up some interesting topics. Uh, me and, of course, my producer, Mr. Stephen Hackett, who managed to avoid any fireworks-related injuries over the 4th of July weekend. Hi, Stephen. Hey, you know, I live in the South. That's something to be proud of. So yeah, came through un, unscathed. Unscathed. That's good. Marika. Um, this brings us to topic number one. Let's talk about electric cars and the future of transportation. Um, I bought an electric car recently. That's not actually one of the news headlines for the week, but it has <laughs> definitely made me think and uh, care a lot more about where the auto industry is going. Uh, this week, Volvo announced, uh, they're not a huge automaker, but it's certainly a prominent one, that by 2019, all of the cars it ships will have some amount of electric uh, tech electric motor in them they're either going to be all electric models or hybrids but there won't be gas only models anymore in volvo's fleet tesla announced this week uh, that the model 3 is going to begin rolling off the assembly line this week although they're, they're only going to make 100 next month um, but they're ramping up 1500 in september and up to they hope um tens of thousands by the end of the year uh there are some battery production issues also i noticed a story this week about how china is ramping up production of batteries as it begins a push to embrace electric cars which might help cut down on pollution in its cities it's very air polluted cities so uh i thought we'd talk about electric cars and the future of transportation a little bit matt i was visiting you guys in the uk not too long ago as you know we 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 chatted uh we had some tea and i was wondering what what the state of affairs in the UK and Europe is for electric cars, because it struck me, uh, staying with our our, uh, our friend Simon, uh, who doesn't have a garage of any kind, I thought you couldn't he couldn't get an electric car even if he could drive. So I'm, I'm curious, brought more broadly, what's the state of affairs in terms of electric car stuff happening in the UK? Well, it's definitely happening, and that is a new thing. Um, in the case of Simon, he lives in central London. And the interesting thing there is that 
as is often the case with um, uh, these kind of new developments in tech, it is very much um, more broadly accepted in a uh, wealthy space like central London. Um, but it's also the case that it's, um, uh, it, it is more difficult to drive. And so uh, shorter distances, all the same things that I suspect mean that people in San Francisco are more likely to have um, an electric car. Um, but it's happening. I, mean, I live in a fairly rural place and the gas stations around here all have electric charging points. I'd say it's still hmm. unusual to see a, a pure electric car, but, but you see a lot of hybrids. Um, as with, with most places, there are tax breaks around that. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely something that is, if not... Um, uh, uh, something that you see all the time. It is a thing that is not all that unusual. Is it something that you would uh, that you would consider? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm curious about like what cross what makes somebody cross over to buy a hybrid or buy an all electric car. I would certainly consider it. Um, in my case, uh, as you know, I, I, I commute into London every day, and so I, I do that on foot and by train. Mm. Um, but I do have, in fact, we have two cars in our household, um, and they're kind of old and kind of beaten up, but but that's all they need to be. The only reason we have them is because we have small children, so on occasion we need to use a car. Uh, I'm not really a car person, and it, it, it's kind of the thing that slightly concerns me about the whole piece because, of course, uh, electric cars are on the face of it, better than a gas-guzzling beast in terms of their impact, uh, in terms of wasting natural resources. But anything that encourages people to buy new cars is, by its very nature, bad in terms of wasting uh, natural resources. So I, I'm, I'm kind of unsure how I feel about the whole electric car piece. If I was buying a new car, and, and I would have to have a serious amount of money to even consider that, I probably would get a hybrid, I would think. It does matter at least a little bit um, where your electricity comes from. Obviously, that if your if your electric mix is uh, very coal heavy, for example, you may be uh, you may be polluting more with your electric car than with a gas car, or at least have it be comparable. That's one of the challenges with. Uh, but also, with in, in terms of the uh, the, um, the construction of a car, the the carbon footprint of an automobile. Um, the majority of it, I believe, is in the construction of the car and the raw materials that are used to make the car anyway. Mm. So certainly in the 90s, there used to be this very strong ecological argument that the worst thing that could happen um, would be a car that ran on nothing because it would just continue to encourage people to buy new cars. So mm. arguably the best thing environmentally, if that is the concern here, um, would be... Um, more public transport, more sharing right. of cars. And actually electric cars do play a big part in that in terms of um, the idea of carpooling and ultimately, I guess, driverless cars. I think it's an interesting, uh, coming from, you know, a, maybe a, a bit of a unique perspective of having lived in the UK um, and learned to drive there on the wrong side of a road and then moved here <laughs> five years ago. And, you know, the, the idea of space in the US is so different, right? Um, and so one of the big things that consumers that are not interested in buying cars put out is, well, it's not enough for me because I commute every day. Um, you know, if you go to San Francisco every day, you need to make sure that you have a place to charge if you want to come back to the bay in the evening, right? Um, because of the time that you spend in traffic. And, and so that all electric, um, it's something that I think consumers are concerned about as far as how much freedom of movement you end up with. But the, there are two interesting points that you both pointed out. One was Jason's first comment about a garage and, and uh, 
we've been thinking about selling our second car um, and uh, buy a, a smaller electric car for just doing errands around here, like, you know, dropping off a kid to school and that kind of stuff. But I will have to empty my garage because at the moment there's a lot of stuff in there that does not fit the car. So we have a, a really nice garage uh, with two cars parked outside. <laughs> and the garage has everything else in there, right? Um, but the other part is, why do you do it? Do you do it because you are environmentally f- focused and, and conscious? Do you do it to lower uh, your cost? Uh, what is the drive? And, you know, I feel bad every time I sit in my uh, truck because people say that the drive, the car I drive is not a car, it's a truck. We have two Mastiffs, um, one kid, but two Mastiffs that need to fit in, <laughs> in our car. So we needed something large. And so here I am with this truck um, to drive everybody around. And, and it does uh, use up a lot of uh, petrol, as I still call it, or gas, as I, um, as people call it here. But is that enough of a reason for me to buy uh, when and if I get electric, I need to think about actually fitting um, solar panels in the house, because otherwise I can't always go and and um, um, charge the car somewhere. So I think that it's not an easy choice. And it's interesting to see that consumers uh, generally are not necessarily thinking about it that way. We uh, at Creative Strategies did a study um, just last month about how consumers see transportation because there's a lot of talk about where commuting uh, is going to go, how we're going to change the way we move from point A to point B. And um, definitely fully electric cars are not something that consumers seem to be considering uh, a lot when uh, thinking about replacing their current car. Hybrid is, you know, the way that they think about it. And I don't know if it's like for me, that safety net of, of having choice or if, uh, as as Matt was saying, more about thinking about the cost of producing the car uh, from that environment point of view. Range anxiety is a real thing. I, I even with our used electric car that we really only—it's what you described it as. It is the going around town. My wife's commute is only a couple of miles, um, so it's not for long distances. It's our short distance car, and um, it's great for that. But even there, I have to—we have those moments of like, could we drive it to Oakland? Could we drive it into San Francisco without recharging it? Could we drive it to the South Bay? And you know, the, it, even if we never plan to do it that way, you start to think about it. Like, what if this and what if that and the advantage of something like a hybrid especially the hybrids that are sort of primary electric um and then use the the gas motor basically to charge the electric um so that you can get range it it seems like a a much more gentle transition for this sort of thing steven are you a uh, are you an electric i'm curious you're in memphis Uh, are you thinking about have you ever considered like going electric or hybrid Uh, i have thought about it so i bought a new you know, traditional gasoline car in 2014, but I really hope that my next vehicle would be all electric. I would like to skip over the hybrid step, but I'm in a unique position where I work from home. Any place I need to go is in the city. I don't have a lot of the range anxiety issues. Now, I think we would still have a traditional car or hybrid for a long time for those road trips. We have three small kids, like that's part of our life still. But for me as an individual, you know, during the week, electric car would totally meet my needs. And, and uh, 
even in even in a city like Memphis, which is more spread out, you know, the, our density here is very low. Everything is a twenty to thirty minute drive. It seems like even then, I would be I'd be fine with it. So I'm excited in reading these articles and seeing what Tesla's doing, and even some of the more traditional manufacturers as they as they gear this stuff up. I'm looking forward to having hopefully several really good options in you know three, four, five years uh, down the road when. I want to get car shopping again. Yeah, I think it's I think it's going to happen. Uh, I think I think this transition is going to happen. I, I read a story also this week. Actually, there's a lot of these stories going around about how France has said that they plan on banning gas vehicles by 2040, something like that. It's like this is going to change how we how 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 uh, transportation uh, works, and and the gasoline only cars are going to fade away. It seems almost inevitable, but like how and when and what will consumers want and what are they not going to accept and will China embrace this drive down cost in ways that maybe we haven't anticipated because China has really embraced a lot of different energy technologies and now they're they want to be a leader in battery manufacturing and they want to put electric cars on the on the streets and that changes uh, things even further and then you throw in uh, the self-driving cars and like are we all going to own our own cars in 20 years? Or it, That's it, a big uh, question, right? Right, because right. it could be if you've got a fleet of cars that drive themselves, it's way more efficient to b- belong to a subscription car service and call a car when you need it than to have one parked in your driveway. Like, you know, my, our second car doesn't move for most of the week. It just sits there for when we need two cars. It's very wasteful. That's exactly the situation in our household. And yeah, I completely agree. And I look at my children and I think they're probably never going to have to learn to drive, actually. They may... Um, because it may be something that they they enjoy as, as kind of a, a hobby in the same way. There's lots of things we don't have to do now, but we still do. But I, I completely agree. I think the the way this does have an impact on both our lives and um, the environmental impact of the way we live our lives is is that it becomes a much more efficient way of pooling resources. Um, you know, it's always been the case that public transport what's better for everyone better for society better for the environment but we don't like public transport but if public transport is a very smart fancy car that you call and it turns up immediately and takes you where you need to be then i think probably that's the thing that will get us over that particular hump yeah i i tend to agree we have exactly the same situation with a second car not using it very much and that's why we're saying well maybe we downsize and but the other side at the moment um so I'm I'm married to a New Yorker who does not have a driving license. And that worked absolutely fine when it was in New York, not so much in California. <laughs> um, and so we're going through that phase of he doesn't really enjoy driving. He hasn't done it for most of his life. Why does he have to do it now? And so we've been through that um, kind of what the future can look like where we use our, we use Lyft or a traditional taxi uh, when uh, when he needs it and when I'm not around or you know I cannot do things like dropping the the kid around. But right now it's still painful and expensive, you know. But when you're looking at um, this becoming more commonplace, and you also consider the total cost of ownership of a car, yeah, it, it seems not you know it, it really a no brainer to go and use the car when you need to, um, either, you know, if you rent it or if you are driving and when it becomes 
driverless cars, you don't even have to worry about who's actually driving the car, which is sometimes what stops me from using some of, you know, these rideshare companies. And in the Bay Area, you even have one that is specific for kids, um, where the drivers are, you know, uh, vetted. And, and so you could it, theoretically have somebody to keep, pick up your kid and drop it to school and then pick it up and, and drop it home. I don't do it. Um, I don't think I would ever do it, but would I trust technology to do that? Possibly, you know, better than having some human in the car that I don't know with my kid, right? Uh, so there's a lot of opportunity there going forward, I think, to um, live differently. But how much of the way that we've lived so far is going to be a hurdle to allow us to embrace these new ways? I think that is the biggest question to me. You know, buying a car has always been the big milestone in somebody's life, or mm-hmm. at least doing your driving license test, right? That is almost like, this is it, you are grown up now, you can drive a car. And it was true, you know, in Italy, where I grew up in the UK, where I live most of my life and here. How is that going to change? What is is that, you know, getting your own account on Uber going (laughs) to be the the same thing? Yeah, what's the rite of passage? Uh, I mean, free movement is a huge thing, that freedom that goes along with being able to drive yourself around. And if, if you're, you know, even at 13 or 14 or 12 or 10, I don't even know, you can use an app to get around. I, I have to say, driving my kids around, I've had those, I've had those fantasies of like, can you imagine if, if there's just like an app that they could get and the car would just come get them and take them to their dance class or something like that instead of me having to drive them? That would be kind of awesome. <laughs> and yeah. I wouldn't have to worry about it um but you know we're not there yet but i do yeah i wonder like the the ramifications of that i mean it doesn't have to be self-driving cars there are places that have tried car share systems where there are cars kind of scattered around and you can just reserve one and go get it but it seems like letting the cars move themselves around is a is something that will probably make it much more convenient and more likely to happen i don't know um well let's uh let's uh that's a good talk so we'll we'll, we'll check back in with everybody in five years and see what cars that you've got if, <laughs> if, if, if matt's cars are still holding out um but you know that's the truth of it is is that you've got the two cars you don't want to get rid of them because sometimes you need them but most of the time you don't need them and yeah it's so it's so wasteful like yeah but that's where we are you got to have them but is you know is, is it just a safe yeah exactly is you know the the linux blanket or or the reason why you have insurance you know just in case just in case well i, I will say i love driving my electric car and it's a nissan leaf it's it's not a fancy car at all it's a subcompact car but that electric motor is actually really amazing the torque you know you put down the pedal and it just shoots off shoots from a, off. Yeah. it's a it's it's way more fun to drive than my much more expensive gas cars um so i i it's actually been a pleasure to drive it so i'm kind of a believer in electric cars just as a fun thing to drive too um all right well let's take a break and then we'll tell we'll come back with another topic this episode of download is brought to you in part by text expander from our friends over at smile you can communicate smarter with text expander it's perfect for standardizing and improving the written replies that you send every day helping you eliminate the drudgery of boilerplate language with text expander you can recall your best and most frequently used words and phrases by creating keyboard shortcuts. Text Expander does all the work. So st- set up a snippet for your company's tagline or an address or phone number or a standard introduction you use every time you send an email. Uh, you can also auto format dates 
with Text Expander, autocorrect misspellings, search your team's collected knowledge with a few letters and a hotkey so you can collaborate better in tools like Slack with text snippets. You can share links faster by creating shortcuts to your favorite websites. You can even help your company stay on message by sharing your team's collected knowledge. If there's somebody in your company who's dealt with an issue and come up with a snippet, you can use that snippet too. And then your company language stays consistent across all of your different users, which is pretty cool. Like, this is how we answer this question. You put it in a snippet, and then everybody uses it. And if you need to update it, everybody else gets the update too. It's pretty cool. If you spend any amount of your day typing, you need to try Text Expander, and you can try it free for 30 days on the Mac, on iPad, on iPhone, or on Windows. Visit TextExpander.com slash DownloadFM to start your free trial today. Thank you to Text Expander for supporting Download. All right, topic number two this week is about internet culture, including the kind of darker parts, but not just them, too. This past week, of course, everybody probably knows that Donald Trump caused a little bit of a stir by tweeting out a meme video that was created by a Reddit user showing him beating up a professional wrestler where CNN's logo had been superimposed on the wrestler's head. CNN then went and tracked down the Reddit user who was very apologetic about his behavior. Um, And uh, I also saw this week in New York Magazine, Brian Feldman wrote this story about how there were a bunch of layoffs recently at Tumblr, which is a wildly popular site, but Verizon acquired all the old Yahoo assets and looked at Tumblr. And it's just an example of how these wildly popular internet culture sites, Reddit, Tumblr, even YouTube, has struggled to be profitable. So I'm curious what you all think about what this says about this culture that we've built on the internet. It's free, it's powerful, and it may not actually be sustainable. What is going on here? Carolina, what do you think? Well, you said it, the internet must be free, right? Everything that we have been accustomed to um, with the internet is that most of the stuff that's there, you don't pay for it, or at least not directly, right? Um, a lot of it is is funded by advertising. And um, I think that for a lot of brands, that um, monetization model is still a bit hit and miss. Um, and for some things, it works really well. For others, it doesn't. Um, making sure that you have your target audience is not as easy as it looks. Uh, but from a consumer point of view, it's free and it's convenient. The moment you make me pay for it, it has to be damn good for, you know, for me to actually fork out money. Um, and it's, I think it's all that balance of what is good enough. Uh, and what I'm prepared to consume because I'm not paying for it. And, you know, on the other side is what kind of service am I expecting? What kind of quality am I expecting if I start to pay? Um, and uh, not very many people, I guess, are finding um, that is worth paying for stuff that you can find on the Internet. Now, you can be very popular and be losing money hand over fist. And popularity isn't the, the, the if you have a budget, you know, popularity isn't good enough. You can you can die of exposure, I think, is what people say. Matt, you used to work in an industry that was all about people giving you money. Well, not all. There were ads. All, there were always <laughs> ads. But people would also give you money for the content. And now you haven't gone anywhere and you work in an industry where all the content is basically given away for free. So, you know, how do you feel about where we where we've ended up with the business model of incredibly successful things that people love that struggle to make money. 
Um, I, I mean, it won't surprise you to know that um, I'm optimistic. I'm a somewhat paranoid optimist, but <laughs> but they're, they're clear there is money to be made in internet culture. Um, generally speaking, media companies, most media companies, simply don't understand media. Um, mm. And uh, that's both in the way that they report and talk about it, but especially in the way they acquire um, these uh, wildly popular but um, not yet monetized businesses i think it's also the case as well that that tech founders um are often not very good ceos with the exception of mr zuckerberg um if you take the example of specific uh, organizations such as twitter or tumblr um th- they are extremely concerned with upsetting the user base that first made them popular by being too overtly um con- uh, commercial um but you know we all understand that if you are accessing something for free then you are the product basically Um, and there are examples both in traditional media and then I mean Facebook is the classic example here Um, uh, not so much in Facebook because I think Facebook is in rampant commercial mode and no longer is social media actually it's just a media platform but Instagram you know people laughed when Zuckerberg spent that amount of money on Instagram but it's hugely profitable now and yet it still manages to maintain this um, aura of of cool or or being loved by its customers Um, products like Tumblr and Twitter there are people making money but then they're not Twitter or Tumblr Um, they're people who are um, uh, to the point that was made earlier uh, using those platforms to advertise but not actually um, paying the platform itself I think I think there's a certain amount of hand-wringing about this. And I would say this, of course I would, because of my, my professional life. But there's a certain amount of hand-wringing about oh, how hard it is because the model has changed. But the reality is if you're offering people genuine value and there is value there, um, and that's not necessarily about scale, it's not necessarily about a thing where you can share something that becomes a meme, but it is about getting a group of people to interact with something in a meaningful way. There is value there, um, but you have to be smart about how you frankly monetize that and you have to not feel icky about making it a commercial proposition and it could be that it's because most times they're trying to find a value for everybody and and that's not easy right there there if i think about twitter i wouldn't mind to pay for a different level um of customization or um you know way of connecting with the people that matter to me because twitter for me is work I don't go on Twitter as a social, you know, um, experience. I do work. That's how I share my thoughts. I share my research. And so why not charge me for something that allows me to see, I don't know, breaking news faster than others or being able to um, see who might be interested in my research? That doesn't mean that everybody has the same need and therefore you make that you know, a kind of a one size fit all type of of product. But I think most of the time, that's what happens is that you want to try and come up with one work, one way of monetizing from all your install base. And and that might, um, you know, limit how effective that way is going to be versus how upsetting, um, you know, how much upset it creates. I mean, there's no question that social media and the internet has impacted not just um, the media and, and the printed press, but even the analyst's life has changed, right? There's so much good content out there from smart people that are not analysts 
that put it out there, right? Um, that the, the bar has increased for us too. And at the same time, traditional way of delivering research and the idea of, you know, not allowing some analysts, um, to be on social media because the clients need to pay for your ideas. You can't possibly put free ideas out there, right? Um, but that doesn't work anymore. And, and it's quite fascinating to see how much that, uh, ready availability of smart ideas has impacted different worlds. Sure. And I, I would say that, um, that really resonates with me because, you know, I often hear people lamenting that, uh, to Jason's point, you know, we used to make things that people used to pay for. Mm. Um, and the reality was people liked some of that, but they didn't like all of it. Um, and we had no way of knowing what they did like. And frankly, that suited mm-hmm. us as journalists because it's kind of fun to make a magazine. Um, and it is, it is, it has never been easier to find your audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something we definitely see in internet culture that every horrible corner of um, society manages to find its audience and amplify itself. But it's also never been harder to. Um, horrible word but monetize it and and what it requires is exactly uh, what what you've pointed out there which is to add true value you know if it is possible that someone can eat your lunch simply because they can get up there and post on Twitter then you probably weren't adding value to the world anyway absolutely Um, you know so now what you have to do is understand what it is that you do that is of great value and who it is of value to and then you can understand how either to your point maybe they will pay for it if they won't pay for it and it is a a valuable group of people i guarantee you someone will pay to access that group of people yeah i I totally agree so the question is then if you look at something like tumblr which has a very very strong community or something like reddit that has huge amounts of traffic and a bunch of different communities the the new york magazine story is basically saying the problem is that a lot of those communities are not places that advertisers want to be or want to be seen because they are difficult subject. There's difficult subject matter. The quality is not particularly high. And I think it's interesting that we've talked about so much of the story is like how the media industry has been transformed and, 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 uh, and harmed in a lot of cases, traditional media by the internet. But there, you know, there is potentially a big difference between a bunch of, uh, a bunch of animated posts on Tumblr and a site that's got a lot of really targeted high value content. And, um, it, it does remain a question like, how is, Reddit a business? Can it be a business? If, if you know, are there parts of it that are good business and parts of it that are bad business? But, you know, that's, it's a different question than the sites that you do, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm very cognizant of that. Um, but even within the world in which, which, you know, which I work and which, which you work to an extent, you know, we know that there are things that we do that we might describe as top of funnel that attract volumes of people, but it's not necessarily the most valuable thing. Absolutely. And that is part of, how you're part of the ecosystem uh, of the internet is how you first attract and engage people. Um, you know, I'm not an expert on either Reddit or Tumblr, but I, I, if you have that broad an audience, and maybe, the, you know, size of audience is one of the challenges here, right? Because we still think in a print way about if you have the most readers, you have the most value, and that's not always the case. It can be to do with how you define um, the group of people that interacts with you. But certainly even from my limited knowledge of both Reddit and Tumblr within there, there are um, 
there are groups, there are areas where people coalesce around things that they've truly value. So then it becomes about, do those people pay for it? Do you, do you believe that they value it enough to pay for it? Or are they a sufficiently um, um, valuable group of people that someone else will pay just to be associated or alongside that, that group of people? Or is it part of your business that is never going to actually be a business and it's just the community that, that feeds the greater whole? But the argument would be that that Tumblr and I mean the, the the thesis of this article is that you can't make money off of these sites because they're not. It sounds like what you're saying is well you can. There are v- highly valuable audiences probably in there that you can make money off of, and maybe you know they're not necessarily being managed right to, to, with that in mind. That there is money to be made in these communities, and I think you're right. I agree with you. Well, yeah, I, I, mean, too. I would say that because again, I'm an optimist, but but that is <laughs> that is my view definitely. No, yeah, but I think it's. Right. I mean, the, the even if some of them are, you know, topics that people get excited that are difficult topics, as Jason said, but that there is a lot of passion in there. Um, it is about the size of that passion. You know, how how big is that community? How uh, engaged it is, and and then uh, you know, how do you target it? Um, is I think about it more as an opportunity, more like that than not necessarily charging for something like Tumblr. But, um, you know, targeting communities um, is, is important. And, you know, I, maybe I'm too much of a skeptic, but when I think about all the work that Zuckerberg is doing around communities and, you know, the greater good of the world, I think that's just another way of helping him size the audience and see where people are and you know what they're passionate about and then there comes the advertising completely another example if if i could that i would give that's just occurred to me is you know um who would have thought that you could monetize sports fandom in the way that fantasy leagues has done um and that's not uh that's not people paying to access content and it's not um, anybody paying to advertise to those people. It is a group of people who share a passion about something being further engaged in a kind of gamified, arguably gambling way. And that is a huge business now. Um, but it's, it's come from a slightly left field approach to um, how one makes money from a passionate group of people. I have a friend who actually works in conservative media, and I think the thesis that something like the Donald Trump Reddit doesn't can't you know it's it's anathema to advertising. Well, maybe it's anathema to massive advertising, but you know what? There are businesses that want to reach that audience. There are, and and they they do exist, and they uh, that's that's who will make money in that particular target and you pick pick another target and you will find somebody who probably wants to reach those people for you know for their own businesses purposes it might not be ford it might not be coca-cola but there are still businesses that want to reach very focused communities because it's way more effective if you can say a hundred percent of the people in here love this product or are of this demographic than to say well you know there's a million people watching tv and they're all over the place and like it's way more focused and 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 that's the advertisers like that. And, and don't forget that those um, those people don't have to be advertised on the basis that they're reading conservative media. I mean, that might turn off some advertisers from being in that environment. But the reality is in, in the modern world, partly thanks to our friend Mr. Zuckerberg and also Google, everybody has a digital footprint. And even the most um, right-wing person who's accessing that that um, media probably also has family and buys a car and all of those things. So um, wherever people uh, attract, uh, gather together and are engaged, 
if you can identify who the people are, there is a way of um, of, of marketing to mm. those people. And it might also be a way of reaching people that you really couldn't have reach before through you know more traditional means um to exactly the, the you know the point you were making and and that is uh, extremely valuable because you would never get to them in any other way i mean the idea of having a targeted audience and advertisers that come into that audience with a close match i mean that is like my business model at really fm like that's how this podcast company it's how we pay our bills. It's how my partner and I do it as a full-time job because we know our audiences and we can bring in advertisers that fit well. I think where these, like you guys were saying, the the problem in these really broad communities is that you you have to go broader with your advertising. And sometimes yeah, that's fine if someone just wants to do you know, like brand advertising, you know, like your Coca-Cola billboard on the side of the highway. But for direct response advertising, which is what most podcasting is funded by, you have to be niche to a degree, right? You have to, to, to narrow the funnel to a degree to, to know, I know roughly what these type of people, you know, what they do, what they like to spend their money on, et cetera. And when I look at, at Relay versus, you know, a company like, like Tumblr, like obviously there's no comparison, really, they're way bigger than we are. But what we're doing works really well for a company of our size and with the type of content we produce and the type of people who, who enjoy it and care about it. So, you know, I read this article about, you know, this uh, internet culture you can't make money on, I believe you can, but I believe it's much harder the broader and larger you get. Unless you do something like like what Matt was saying, you know, the thing about the web is you can track people and then you can identify them from their interest in cars somewhere else and then find them on the Donald and serve them car ads <laughs> because, you know, it, you're, not, you're not then trying to reach that particular audience. You're just reaching that user wherever they are, which advertisers like. Um, but but I would also say that I totally agree with the point, and I spend my entire working life going more niche, more niche all the time. There's no point as aiming for scale in a world where Google and Facebook exists. The the way that we add value both to our readers and to our customers who are advertisers is by having very defined audiences of people and creating an environment where they are looking to transact. And and that's it. Passion is always valuable, but it has to be targeted yeah. and niche. That's uh, that's the IDG story in a nutshell. It's just evolved a lot in the last forty or fifty years. Forty or fifty days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It keeps well. Yeah, that's media. It's it's an exponential change. Um, let's move on to another topic first. I want to tell you about our other sponsor this week. It's Pingdom. Start monitoring your websites and servers today by going to pingdom.com slash RelayFM. You'll get a 14-day free trial. When you enter offer code DOWNLOAD at checkout, you'll get 30% off your first invoice. Pingdom is focused on making the web faster and more reliable for everyone who has a site. They do this by offering powerful and easy-to-use tools and services. For example, if you're a Pingdom user, monitoring the availability and performance of your server, your database, your website is a breeze. They take care of this by using more than 70 different global test servers that emulate visits to your site, checking its availability as often as every minute. These days, websites are becoming more and more sophisticated. They very often include several dependencies, contact forms, e-commerce checkouts, logins, search 
functionality a whole lot more. And Pingdom makes it possible to monitor the availability of all of those different interactions people have with your site. It's not just about the whole site being up. It's about different functions of your site working correctly because stuff breaks on the internet all the time. So every month, Pingdom detects about 13 million different outages, more than 400,000 outages every day that Pingdom finds and warns the owner of that site about. So whether you've got a small site, you're managing a complete infrastructure, it doesn't matter. Super important to monitor availability and performance. All Pingdom needs to get started, the URL of the site you want to monitor. They take care of the rest. When they detect an outage, you will be immediately alerted so you can fix the error. You don't want to be caught out when someone wants to access your site. You need Pingdom. Check it out today and be the first person to know when your site is down instead of hearing from angry customers. Go to Pingdom.com slash RelayFM for that 14-day trial and use download at checkout to get 30% off your first invoice. Thank you to Pingdom for sponsoring Download. All right, before we move on to topic number three, I wanted to mention a story you might have missed, something that may have flown under the radar, but is maybe worth mentioning. The U.S. ban on laptops on airplanes coming from other parts of the world got a little less banny this week. Uh, flights from Abu Dhabi are now clear of the ban. There's already a U.S. Customs preclearance facility there. It sounds like they beefed up their security at the preclearance facility and that the U.S. is more comfortable with incoming flights if they've already checked the passengers themselves. Uh, I hope, though, that this is a sign that the threats on banning our use of laptops and tablets on other flights coming into the U.S. might be waning, that maybe the story is changing a little bit. So let's hope so. We'll keep an eye on that and let you know if it changes further. Um, let's talk about uh, something new. Let's talk about something old. Let's talk about something horrible. How about that? It's all those things wrapped into one. New York Times. Uh, Katie Benner wrote a story on June 30th in the New York Times about the culture of harassment in Silicon Valley. It was the latest in a whole, just endless series of stories that we've seen about how women are treated very badly in the technology industry. And yet this one got a lot of attention, perhaps in part because it focused on venture capitalists, who are the very definition of a rich and powerful powerful cabal that does not particularly like to be questioned or challenged. Benner has since written that she's heard from many more women in tech than the ones she initially wrote about. She's been threatened or intimidated by VCs herself who don't want to talk about this and don't like that this is coming up. And she actually made an interesting point that... Um, that white women were more interest, more likely to speak out than women of color, which suggests that there's also uh, there's also a vulnerability issue here, where women of color feel so so much more vulnerable than than white women do about speaking out about harassment. It's a whole mess. It seems to have led some venture capitalists to do some serious soul searching, which is good, I guess. Although I think it's a little unclear about how much of that is real and how much of that is trying to get ahead of the story and do some damage control. Now. I don't think the, the four of us can solve all these problems here, although wouldn't that be amazing if we could? But I am curious what you think. That would be think. awesome. Yeah, I'm curious what you think about how much, I mean, so much of the industry that we all built our careers in seems to be built on these rotten foundations. It's really dispiriting. Um, Carolina, what did you think about the latest stories and, and, and you know, what can be done about this? Um I've been thinking about this for a while and that kind of debating back and forth, if that, you know, to write something about it or not, because I have like a whole different like sets of emotions coming in. One is, you know, I am a woman. I uh, lived most of my life in tech in different countries. Um, but if I look at my you know, kind of country of origin, uh, women have a much more traditional um, 
role to play in in culture and and I'm sure that young Italian women are all going like oh my god what's she talking about um but it is quite fascinating how I, I read a, an article this morning by uh Sharo Vid at, at, at Bloomberg and uh, you know she was saying you know I'm sick and tired of reading about brave women and I agree with her I thought it was a great article and you know this idea of we shouldn't be brave to talk about this, but maybe I am representing what a lot of women go through, which is, you know, you're kind of thinking, am I making, you know, is this normal? Am I making an issue out of nothing? Um, you know, now I'm sure that there are a lot of women going through, that's exactly my situation. What if I talk about it? Does it mean, you know, does it make it like I want to jump on the bandwagon of this? And, and, you know, now that there is attention to it, just add to it. It, It's not an easy thing. And as always, when you point out something, um, you know, anything from, from rape to, you know, uh, misconduct at work, uh, the accuser becomes, the, the victim becomes the accused, right? And, and that is not an easy place to be at all. Um, but for me, it points to a world, especially with tech, that is still, um, very male dominated and controlled. And you are an odd one out and there are arm, armless, you know, uh, preconceptions that people have that build into behaviors that then are not so armless anymore. Um, you know, it goes from, you know, people assuming when I'm traveling with a male colleague that I am his secretary, um, to, you know, having to have a, um, a, a pay gap or, uh, if you are raising your voice in a meeting, you, you are being emotional. Yeah, if a male colleague does it, that's okay. He's, you know, he's being a leader. Um, so, you know, there's so much that goes into it that even from a, from a woman's, pers- woman's perspective, it is difficult to get your head around it, to be honest. One of the things that struck me about some of these stories um, is that how much of this is just a lot of these, a lot of these, the men who did these mea culpas after the fact, um, what they were saying is they didn't realize what they were doing. And we can debate whether that's true. But I think to some extent, it might be that there is a broader cultural problem. There's nobody there to say, you know, first off, they were raised in a culture where they think that this is okay. There's nobody there to stop them. Somebody pointed out that VC firms are so small that they tend not to have things like human resource departments who like might a be homeless able, man. Yeah, right, right. Might be able to say, <clears throat> you can't do that. Here's our policy. Mm-hmm. Here's how you have to behave. It's like they don't, you know, necessarily have any of that so you it builds upon builds and i do i do believe that some of these guys actually are being truthful when they say i hadn't really thought of it like that i thought this was just normal behavior it's hard to believe that that was still the case but i in the world in the you know the air they're breathing the water they're swimming in um it seems like that may actually be true that they just never gave it any thought these are powerful rich men but that brings the the, I think even more scary for of what from a society perspective does that say? You know, I have a nine year old girl. Um, what world is she living in? And, and if you talk to millennials, they say, well, it's not maybe as 
you know, bad as it, it is in a older kind of um, uh, situation. So if you have more baby boomers, so people my age, but it's still there, you know, there are still things that are, are there. And so I'm thinking about my kid and I'm thinking about AI as well. And, you know, if that, if I don't think that's wrong, if they didn't think that their behavior uh, was anything but normal, and here we are at a point where we are training machines to take over, and we are the ones who are making the decisions about, you know, at least initially, how these machines are going to think. What is our AI, you know, led world going to look like if we think that is okay to make jokes about, you know, women being temperamental certain days of the month or, you know, women bleeding by the face because they had a, a, a surgery. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Because the products are built. We see this in Silicon Valley all the time. The products are built by a group of people who is not uh, who's not diverse enough to understand the needs of a of the larger world than the group of of mostly men, mostly white in Silicon Valley who are building it. But I think that's the critical point, really. I think that any industry that prizes prodigious working effort um, that that offers extreme privilege to in inverted commas rock stars is by its very nature anti-family and anti-normal life, and within that culture what typically happens is that it becomes because in western society it is the case mostly for better or for worse that women tend to be the primary carers in early years of of children's life if you've got an anti-family environment it tends to mean that the upper environs of that environment become white male uh, i speak as a white male man Um, and at the same time that means that people tend to recruit what they see in themselves and it and it and it becomes exponential and so one of the things that i think is really important and i recognize this in my own industry um is that we have to recognize that and challenge it and that means challenging it both in terms of i I hate the phrase affirmative action because affirmative action means two wrongs make a right and in fact what we're talking about is um is is positive or active recalibration to the mean really um but you know taking steps to ensure that that all uh, both all genders uh, and skin colors and cultures are represented as much as is possible. But it also means on a macro level, um, people such as myself who consider themselves to be, frankly, a feminist, um, but then being the father of the daughter suddenly realized how um, narrow-minded and, uh, uh, frankly, wrong a lot of my views on, on things were, um, that we challenge people's language. And, and, you know, it is a difficult thing to do if you're in an environment where somebody makes a joke and most people think it's okay to say, actually, that's not cool. And especially if you're in a position of leadership, you have to do that. Um, So again, the, the optimist in me says... It is awful that this stuff is going on and that attention has been drawn to it, but it is better that attention has been drawn to it so that we can at least discuss and challenge it. But we are such a long way away from a healthy environment whereby um, these very powerful people who are making very powerful decisions um, are, frankly, have a sort of broad enough worldview to to um, faithfully serve more than half the population. Right. It's... Uh... 
it's sunlight is a great disinfectant a phrase that i think of a lot and as painful as it is to see these stories coming out and as frustrating as it is at least when these sorts of things happen everybody should be thinking about what they've seen and i think the point that everybody needs to speak up is absolutely true that the way this thing changes is by making it very clear in your culture and that that certain kinds of behavior are not allowed and 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 are not normal and that only happens if everybody is is not only striving to have workplaces that are more diverse and that more voices are are able to be heard but that everybody um whether you're a man or a woman no matter what your race is or or your sexual orientation or anything else uh that you can say that's not cool you know you need to not do that that's not acceptable behavior instead of just sort of remaining silent and uh, there was a lot of silence and a lot of, you know the root of this i have to say it is that that uh, it, it seems like the root of this is a particular culture that was a monoculture and it became way more powerful and had way more effect on the world and the, not just the business world but our world in general than um any monoculture should but it happened and so here here we are having to deal with the fallout of it and i think a lot of it is also because the you know, if you think about still how hard it is for, you know, being a woman in tech, whenever I go to any conference, I always make the joke about, you know, being able to you know, kind of walk into the bathroom with no line compared to the line that is in front of a gents, right? Um <laughs> And and you do things like that and you cheer for the woman that is on stage and you count how many women there are on stage during a keynote. But then you start to look at, you know, okay, why are all the women doing demos and there isn't, you know, the head of something, right? You know, they're talking. And so you need to think about how hard it is for these women just to be in the freaking room to start with. God forbid, sit at the table and have a voice. And so, you know, that I think is how we got to where we got to that the women that are there that are too scared of speaking up and, and saying something because they know how hard they work to get to where they are. Um, and now, hopefully, we started that process where we made talking about it okay and where more women are going to feel empowered to say, no, that is not the way you behave. That is, you know, it's not acceptable. And that will will change. But like Jason, you know, like you were saying, it's a big process and and it affects, you know, not just HR, but, you know, from the very top of all the way to to the the last person in, in the company. It is a culture. And to be honest, you know, as a, as a woman in America, um, is a hard place to be at the moment when the very top man behaves the way he does uh, with women. And so I, you know, I am concerned that that is how um, a lot more people are going to feel empowered to make certain jokes, to do certain things. Um, and here we are. Yeah, it's not no easy answers here, which is why we were not able to solve it today. But I think it's worth <laughs> I think it's worth talking about, right? That is but one absolutely, of the, but one that's of the things exactly to do. it, right? 
right? Is yeah. to then you th- then you think about it, and a lot of this stuff comes from things that people aren't thinking about. They don't realize the ramifications of what they're doing. I mean, there are always going to be horrible people who do horrible things. Sorry, I'm bringing everybody down now, but there are also a lot of people who are doing things that are horrible that they don't realize they're doing, and that's uh, that's the root of a lot of uh, of this problem too. Just well, not. Uh- and also to to bring things back up, I do sincerely believe that that a, a, the root of a lot of this, or the root of changing a lot of this, is consciously changing culture. And I do think it's about being pro family um, as much as it is about um, talking about gender lines. And that doesn't mean you know you don't have to have a family in order to want to have a work life balance. Um, and too often, I think in these organisations, and it's the same in media as it is in tech, whereby you succeed by working incredibly long hours or going to the pub and all this stuff and the, the thing that brings it up for me and makes me always feel good is what country has more unicorns per capita than any other country and it's sweden and i have colleagues who work in sweden and trust me they do not work ridiculously long hours they take two years off when they have children the men have to take six months off when they have children and it's not as if that's anti-competitive because sweden has very many successful international businesses based on this kind of workforce so it is possible but in that case, um, to the point that was made just before, it, it does come right from the top because it's actually mandated that you have to behave in this way. It doesn't prevent people working efficiently at all, but it does create a culture in which you do see different types of people at the top because it's not predicated on your ability to either start from privilege or ultimately um, be able to work 10 hours a day more than the next guy just to uh, reach the top yeah right. because it creates opportunity for people to do what they want to do right. there you could in fact argue that there are a whole bunch of incredibly talented and creative people who don't get into these industries or to senior points in these industries because they refuse to play that game and if that game was not able to be played you'd have some other talent that that you know people who got like i got married fairly young um i've got kids like i was not a person who was going to i can't imagine like working one of those jobs where you're expected to be there 15 hours a day and and it's just like i can't imagine it so how many people um drop out or don't even try to go into that industry if it if if those are the terms right and so that's a brain drain an invisible brain drain you don't see it but it's really there all right. Well, this has been a great conversation. Uh, I, before we go, I'd like to tell the listeners, I always like to say what to look out for in the week ahead. Again, it's summer. There's not a lot going on. I will point out July 12th is Different Colored Eyes Day. Um, it's unclear <laughs> if one of my eyes is a different color or if it's just an optical illusion based on the fact that one of my pupils is bigger than the other, kind of like David Bowie. But let's raise a glass to Christopher Walken and Mila Kunis and Simon Pegg and probably your cat. Who knows? Uh, anyway, Different Colored Eyes Day is July 12th. So write that down on your calendars and celebrate. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Download. Carolina Milanese, where can people find what you do? You can find me on Twitter on uh, at Caro underscore Milanese, M-I-L-A-N-E-S-I. And they can also find me, uh, find me every Wednesday on uh, TechPinions, which is www.techpinions.com. And tech optimist Matt Egan, where can people <laughs> find what you do? Oh, my goodness. Um, usually just in the office, um, telling right. people to do stuff. Um, but you could check out any of IDG's market-leading, wonderful technology publications, such as Computer World, PC World, Mac World, Network World. PC Advisor World. UK, I know, is the nearest and dearest to your heart, though, if you had to have a favorite. Tech Advisor UK. Oh. Uh, yeah. See? Things have changed. 
exponential change. Amazing how things change. (laughs) But you're still optimistic. I like that about you. Still optimistic about it. Paranoid and Paranoid and That's the only way to be, That's the best combination. (laughs) That's the way to live your life. Um, Also, thanks to Stephen Hackett and his 10 fingers and 10 toes we counted earlier. (laughs) Thanks, Stephen. It's a very special moment on Skype. Yep. And I've been your host, Jason Snell. Until next week, we will keep watching the headlines, what headlines there are, so you don't have to. Goodbye, everybody. 